1: Welcome, welcome back to Boss Cage Podcast. So today's show is going to be a hella fun show. We're going to geek out on the topic that you guys know that I probably love the most, which is branding. And Kate and I, we, we met recently um, through Damon Burton, which you guys remember from season two, I think it was episode uh, two or three. And he just made this connection. It's like the synergy has just been there since. I mean, we're like, we're like talking the same exact language. We have the same exact philosophies and it just kind of like we're two halves of of coming together to make one whole, so obviously we're coming business partners as well too. So I'm gonna deem her right. I'm gonna give her this name, and I've been holding on to this name for a long time. I'm gonna call her the brand boss, right? <laughs> yes, the brand boss. So Kate, why don't you tell all these a little bit more about who you are?
0: Well, first off, thank you for having me. This is so much fun. Um, yeah, you and I clicked right away. We were like, uh, two halves of the same hole on branding, which is just so fun. Um, well you guys, my name is Kate DeLeo and I am a brand strategist. Um, uh, the short version is I fell into branding. I did not do this intentionally, but here I am over 10, 15 years later and have worked with more than 200 companies, helping them really create brands, messaging specifically that it really enables them to increase revenue by getting more of the right kind of prospect to the table. So I'm excited to be here and just unpack this concept of brand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like going into branding, you're a brand brand person that really specializes in, in the copy and in the language so right. if you could divine yourself and your brand and you can only choose three to five words what three to five words would you choose you're
0: so putting me on the spot I love this okay hold on let me take a drink of coffee right because we're not there yet it, guys it's eight o'clock in the morning we gotta have some <laughs> caffeine in this right mm. three to five words to describe my brand mm. pragmatic mm. provocative Conversational, hmm. resilient, thoughtful, hmm. and people-centric.
1: Yeah, well, I think you definitely nail it, and I, and just knowing you in the short period of time, I know you. I think you nailed like the core principles of your brand, and then I think you also mm-hmm. introduced some of your value proposition as well, right? So, like, <laughs> let's talk about that. Like, yeah. When you're helping someone establish like their value proposition, right? First and Mm -hmm. foremost, value proposition can mean multiple different things to multiple different business owners, right? So when you're talking about brand value proposition, what are you harnessing on?
0: Okay. Such a great question. Can I, let me talk around it for a second. So the way that I teach branding is you guys, and I know that there's a lot of other amazing brand strategists in the world. Like for example, Donald Miller, Donald Miller came on the scene, right? And he taught story brand, which I think isn't a great concept around having your customer be at the heart of your story, really be the hero of your story. I love that concept, but where a lot of people struggle and a lot of businesses, and you're alluding to this is it doesn't quite get us to the point where we understand how do I do that? What do I actually write? What are the components? And so the components that I teach Chanel are tagline, value proposition statement and differentiators and they have a specific purpose to work together um your tagline is supposed to tell you what you do it's supposed to literally answer that question and we can dig into that on the differences between like coke and google's taglines and nike's taglines versus like most of us right smaller businesses or mid-size the value proposition statement second piece is really supposed to be the, the place where you call out the pain that somebody's experiencing and then directly say, Here's how we solve that problem. Hmm. Value proposition statements really supposed to get at we understand your pain, we get you. Here's how we solve that problem. And then the third thing that I always look for in messaging, if we're a strong brand, are differentiators, sometimes like the three uniques, like what makes you different and better than the rest. But your value prop, honestly, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but have you ever gone to a website? And you read their value proposition statement and you're like, oh my God, they get me. They read my mail. That's what like a really good value proposition statement should do. It's just got to get right to it and be at an emotional level.
1: Hmm. So I think that's a solid segue. I mean, you kind of hinted on like unfair advantages or like a unique proposition, right? So like, let's just talk about that and just define that for the audience as well.
0: Yeah, so unfair advantages, right? So often the, these also can be called the three uniques for a company. Um however you name them, I call them differentiator statements, but I think what we're really getting at is in general from a buyer psychology perspective, people do need to know in that first 15 to 30 seconds, they what you do at a high level, how you can then solve that problem, and the, the next layer down before they're ready to take an action is tell me how you're different and better than the rest. Mm. And This is interesting because depending on your company, sometimes those could be potentially some features and benefits of your technology or system. But I think at a high level, what they're actually trying to make sense of is how are you different from the other competitors who may be trying to promise me the same thing? How do I know for sure that I can trust you? And that's where differentiators come into place. They really build trust in a very candid way.
1: Yeah, I mean, just listening to you speak, right? I mean, obviously, like you're you're you personify branding uh, in, in a level that you know most people don't comprehend, and you make it so transparent and so easy, right? So I want to kind of like time travel back and kind of figure out where, like what kind of kid were you? And, and, and again, I'm gonna be facetious, and I'm gonna say, okay, were you Love the it. kid that were particularly walking around with like a jacket you opened up and you had candy and you was selling the candy? Like, what kind of kid were you?
0: Oh my gosh! Okay, so first off. I grew up in a household with my mom, who's like a doctor and she's an audiologist and she, oh, she's so great at her craft. She was amazing. And she was just kind of that steady day-to-day nine to five person who really reigned in the fort. And then you have my amazing Italian father, who was just a walking serial entrepreneur, dynamic, just totally out there, always consulting, had a couple of businesses, I remember growing up Chanel and be like, I'm never going to be like him. He drives me, uh, Mm. apple and tree. Here I am. Okay. But this is how I knew I was different. Mm. Um, I remember my sister and I would be in our bedroom. We were sharing a room at the time. We're pretty young. And I was probably like four or five years old. And instead of playing like dolls, we would play bank. Mm. So one of us would be the bank teller. And one of us would be pretending to go through the bank and we'd use my dad's old business cards from his Rolodex and like pretend to hand money and exchange money. Since the day I was born, I would go with my father to his various businesses. I was always on business calls with him. I had to shake hands from a very young age. I learned about the power of having a business card. I used to play. I have a vivid memory at two and a half of sitting upstairs playing with business cards. My sister was down outside and I was there and sort the business cards. And I would watch my dad put them into his three Rolodexes lined up on his desk. What I didn't realize is that kind of stuff shaped who I am today. And it's almost like it imprinted in my brain this piece of what I thought normal w- would look like mm-hmm. in the business world. I tried very hard to run away from being an entrepreneur, to be honest with you.
1: I think that's a solid segue about <laughs> running away from being an entrepreneur. Like, Let's talk about like what did you go to college for? That's a whole other genre of running away from entrepreneurism as well, right?
0: Okay. Yeah. So um, hi, my name's Kate and I did not want to do what my parents did. And so I was actually very creative. I was a musician. I was classically trained in music for almost a decade of my life. So vocal performance, piano, and violin. So while my sister was the athlete of the family, I would love to be by myself and I could sit there and spend an hour and a half a night practicing. And I, I I really loved it. I've always been kind of an introvert, even though in the business world, I show up and I've got energy. I always say, I blame it on the coffee. Right. But you know the thing is is um I went to school for cultural and linguistic anthropology. And what is the heck is that? At a high level it's very similar to like sociology which the principles are from anthropology, their field of study is something called ethnography. What they do is they tell stories not from our western perspective, but they go in and they will go and live or un- like study a group of people for years at a time to write the stories and the actual history of that group from their perspective. So it's almost like embedding yourself into the mind of the people that you're working with versus us taking this outward perspective, saying, well, they're doing this for this reason. Okay. Fell in love with the concept and specifically linguistic anthropology, which is really about how does language shape culture and how does culture shape language? (sighs)
1: So
0: that was my background. And I had actually planned to pursue a PhD of all things to go and be a professor.
1: Hmm. So I'm listening to you define that. And to be honest with you, I think it is what you're doing right now. It's exactly what you're doing right now. You're going into business, totally. going into, <laughs> into like countries or going into other people's personas. Yeah. Like that's what you're doing right now, but you're doing it on the business side. Is that not correct?
0: Oh my gosh, completely. Well, it's so funny. So I am 36. So graduated in the market crash, 2008, you guys. So here I am. And the reason I didn't end up going forward with this is, A, I think I was a little tired of academia. I loved it. But I was about to start graduate work, right? And I had a professor that was like, Kate, listen, like, we don't know where this field of study is going to be. And I got to be honest with you, you want to be a professor, it's hard to find those types of roles, even in the United States. I'm going to recommend that you go get a job and pay off your debt and maybe just like come back and make sure that this is really what you want to do in a few years, so of course my Italian father was like, yes, please leave my house and pay off your debt. I love you so much, but you need to leave now. Um, we love you, right? You've been here long enough. So, okay. The thing is, is that I leave academia and I, ha- I remember though, my dad telling me these three pieces of wisdom, yeah. Kate, I don't care what you study. I want you to love college because mm. he became a teacher and he taught for a few years in here. He-, he transitioned as an entrepreneur. Well, mm. he told me three things. Number one, you never burn a bridge. Number two, you live and die by your Rolodex. And number three, you have to know how to sell something. Sage advice. So I left academia. And even so, though, the principles of anthropology and linguistic anthropology, I think God has a sense of humor because, yeah, I absolutely do pull that into my work. I just would have never thought Mm -hmm. that I'd be doing this for businesses and trying to stay as curious as I can as I work with them to understand How in the heck do we harness what already makes them really great and interesting, but maybe help them do a quarter turn of that message and siphon through the 35 ways they talk about themselves, right? And nail that down into the one, two, three that's going to connect with their audience.
1: Yeah, I think it's a powerful background. It's one of those things that from a strategist standpoint you never would have thought that would have been a module to be a bedrock currently where you are so like my next question is is obviously you've been essentially trained to go into cultural differences and to train people how to speak to that culture indirectly right so like in your current business what is the worst example of something that you've had to deal with that you had to overcome dealing with differences
0: oh gosh do you want me to address that just in general, or do you want me to address
1: that like specifically with even like language barriers? Well, you could do both or whatever comes to your mind. <laughs> I want you because you're a visual person, right? So what are you seeing right now? Let's talk about that.
0: Okay, in terms of overcoming differences. Okay, so I think first off, you talk about overcoming differences, and that's probably the biggest hurdle that I actually have to face every single project that I do. I mean, I'm gonna be really honest with you. Like, my clients come in. And they have a sense of understanding of who they are. They have a sense of understanding of who their clients are, right? But I have to be honest. I think most of us as founders and entrepreneurs, we really take for granted two things. We take for granted what actually makes us brilliant. And then I think we really take for granted what our clients really care about. We get very focused on our actual offering. I do this. I provide these products and services. And the problem with that is when you look at brands, then what that turns into is a brand that talks all about the thing and nothing about the people they serve. That's actually where you see a clash of differences. And it directly impacts companies because you see just lack of conversion rates. I'll be seriously honest. Like nobody's going to buy from you if all you're doing is talking about yourself and your product. There's got to be a balance here of, do you care about me? Do you get me as the consumer? And how are you speaking to me first before I want to care about you? It's a really delicate dance in the world of branding. On the cultural side, I find it fascinating right now. Um, We have a huge clash between Gen Zs and Gen Xers. That is a big clash. Like, I feel like the reach between Gen Xers, like my cousins are Gen Xers, and then I'm a millennial, right? That was an easier reach for a lot of us, meaning... I could get where the Gen Xers were coming from and what they cared about and what they value. Gen Zs are different, completely different in the way that they even think about the world and the way they value. And so what's happening is this companies are struggling with this question of, do I have to reinvent myself now for a younger audience? Do I have to totally give up what may be the message that worked for the last 20 years? How in the heck do I reckon with the fact that new buyers care about something completely different?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That is the biggest clash I'm seeing right now. How do you actually work through that?
1: That's definitely interesting. So, I mean, obviously with something that complex, there must be some kind of systems in place to kind of delegate and to divide and conquer and to chew it up into smaller bites. So again, let's say I'm that customer, what systems are you gonna help me to create to kind of overcome that?
0: Great question. Okay, so, and I'm sure you do this in your work too, right? So Mm -hmm. you know how in the process of building a brand, I think we first start with these questions around who am I? What do I want to accomplish? What problem do I solve? You know, what's my personality and brand for my brand, all these things. Right. But part of the work that I do is target audience analysis. So when clients come to me, they go, we think we have a really good understanding of who we're supposed to serve. And I go, great. Can we poke some holes in that to make sure?
2: Uh-huh.
0: And they go, yeah, let's do that. And I go, we're going to look at this from the lens as if a we, we're coming in blind. And B, I want you to look at it from the lens of revenue generation. Not who you like to serve, but revenue generation for a second. Often what happens is you find that if a client comes to you and they say, Kate, I serve 45 to 60-year-olds. Oh, and I also serve 30 to 45-year-olds. Oh, and I also serve Mm -hmm. 18 to 30-year-olds. I go, whoa. So basically you're serving everybody. Mm -hmm. And they go, well, yeah. So the first thing that you have to actually ask yourself is, is reckon with the truth of this is great ba- brands do not serve everybody. Mm-hmm. They do a really good job at serving a small minority that becomes their majority of revenue. Um, so I always have a rule of 70%. Chanel, if you were to look at where your revenue came from, mm-hmm. I want your message to speak to where you think 70% of your revenue came, comes from. Mm-hmm. With acknowledgement that 30% of your revenue can come from other people outside that core audience that you're targeting. And you're totally fine with that. For example, for me, I serve small businesses predominantly. Uh-huh. Does that mean I'm not going to work with a mid-size or enterprise level company? No, but I'm not going to actively go out and market to them uh-huh. the way that I do small businesses. And I'm alright with that. So for you, same rule could apply. Uh-huh. You know who's a really good example of who did this brilliantly and grew their market share? Facebook. Uh-huh. Okay, does anybody remember when Facebook launched, right? First off, Facebook launched just first off way in Harvard. Then it expanded to East Coast schools. And then in 2004, my, my freshman year at college at the University of Minnesota, we were one of the first like 50 to 100 campuses, right, that got like Facebook. Wow. You guys even remember that Facebook was just for college, hence the name? Yeah. Oh, and then they got so good at doing colleges and you had to have a .edu email to sign in or you couldn't even get on the platform. Then when their market share, they blew up that market, then they expanded to the next one. So then they went to other populations, right? And then do you remember when your parents came on Facebook, you're like, oh. well, now Facebook has a totally different group that they serve. So why am I talking about this? Let me go back to the beginning of the question. How do I deal with this, Kate, if I'm serving like these totally disparate or different audiences? I think the question is, is one, am I comfortable serving just one or two of them to start? Two, which ones actually are the path of least resistance to revenue? who have the highest likelihood of buying, who understand and value what I'm delivering the, the most, who don't need to be convinced, but will just convert. I think if you can answer those questions, often what happens is, is instead of you having three to five very disparate audiences, you find that you can really build, build a brand that wins work by targeting one, maybe two.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I t- totally agree with you. And I'm using Facebook as an example. I always look at Facebook as a legacy brand in the sense that, okay, they started off with people that were in college and then they morphed and grew while these people were growing as well into their businesses. And as they continue to grow, they'll continue to morph. And then they, what they'll do is they'll make a new model, Instagram, and go after their kids. And then as the kids grow, then they're going to probably buy another model. What's up, right? So then they have these three different age groups, these three different age brackets that are cohorts that are always going to be morphing and growing, but but they're right. selling to all three of them independently and differently, based upon what the platform does.
0: That's completely right. Yeah, you're spot on. And for us, our brands, even if we're a small business, even if we're a consulting brand, right? You're like, well, I'm just a solopreneur. I just consult. I do B two B services. I think the same rule of thumb applies. You really just have to go back and ask yourself, am I trying to serve everybody, or am I just doing a really good job of serving one audience mm-hmm. really well? Um, because great brands are really hinged upon this philosophy that you are not in the business of convincing. You're in the business of converting. Your job is to not convince everybody to work with you. Your job of your brand and for you as a founder and entrepreneur is to convert the ones who resonated with your message and just do a really good job at having your pipeline full of those few and just close them.
1: Yeah, numbers applied. I mean, the rules and numbers all apply. Eighty twenty rules for sure. Mm-hmm. So let, let, let's talk about like, like, like where you are currently right now, right? And if someone's hearing this for the first time, you may have the perception of an overnight success, but obviously you've had ups and downs and you have had hurdles. So how long have you been on the journey to get to where you are currently?
0: Oh my gosh. Okay, so I had this business as a side hustle for seven or eight years, and I really, you guys, as I was going through my corporate career and working in marketing agencies and working in corporate America. um I just wasn't at a place where I felt confident and ready with my skills to go full-time. And I think it's okay to first off recognize that. You kind of know deep in your gut when you're ready to take that full-time jump as an entrepreneur. Um, it wasn't until three years ago, actually, that I, I took my business full-time. Hmm. So I've been doing this over 10 years, but three years ago is when I made the full-time jump. I really felt like, A, the work was picking up. B, I had gotten to a point where I had built my proprietary thing. And it was really good and people were going, wow, like this really changed the game. And I felt like, okay, I've got something here and I can turn around and put my eggs into that basket and, and, and do this work. But even since going like full-time, I have to be honest, like this is a very zigzag path in the sense that you do have severe ups and downs. And, you know, we had COVID hit a year after I went full-time and I think you have to hold some of your goals very loosely. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, that was a big lesson I learned even last year. I got pretty sick and I hit burnout and my health took a serious tumble and all the goals and intentions that I had for 2021 went right out the window. That sucked, especially if you're type A like me. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God.
1: (laughs) I'm, I'm hearing you, hearing you speaking and, and like, I'm seeing like the ways, right? I mean, obviously you were talking about like your dad in the beginning and, and being there with him and then, you know, trying to buck the system, not wanting to win, do what he did. And then you end up doing something that he didn't want you to do yep. and then end up being your bedrock to where you are right now. So right. again, I want to talk about like time travel being a real thing, right? We're in the metaverse, right? So let's say you can go back in time, right? Any time in, in your lifespan. And this us say you have a 24 hour window and you can go back and talk to your younger self one, what would you go back to? When? Like, when would you go back to? And two, what would you talk to about yourself? Like, how would you change where you are to make it happen a lot faster?
0: I would actually go pretty early back in my life. I would go back to when I was about nine years old. Mm. I'm going to share a really pivotal moment that happened in my life. And it, sh- it really shaped in a bad way and a good way who I am today. All right. So story time. So when I was nine years old, I was at this really awkward phase of my life. I got big glasses and I started putting on weight. I was getting chubby and my mom chopped my hair off and I had this little pixie cut. I just looked ridiculous. Like, I, but I was cute, right? But I, I, even against the other girls with the long blonde hair and here I am, this Italian girl, I stuck out and I just, you know, I was struggling at that point with my confidence. I knew I looked different. I was, I was a bit more bold than the rest. I didn't fit in. And I remember my dad was like, let's take you on a trip. Let's go down to Texas. Let's go visit your uncle and your aunt. I'm like, that sounds awesome. So he took me on this really special dad and daughter trip, which was so fun. And we show up at the door and my my uncle opens the door and he looks at me and he looks at my dad and he busts out laughing. He goes, isn't she just a little potato? Wow. Now, as a nine-year-old girl, that's not something that you ever want to hear. And it was a moment in my life that was a catalyst because I woke up and I realized, Oh my God, this is the way the world sees me. And if I'm not thin and I'm not pretty, nobody's going to like me is literally the belief that I had. And that belief became so ingrained in my life that I fought that belief all the way up until my divorce a couple of years ago. And even still thereafter, you consistently have to fight those lies in your brain. I don't think we ever fully release those. Does that make sense? I think you always, if they pop up, you have to continually go, Oh, that's not truth. That being said, That shaped who I was. And for many years, I ran from my capability and my calling because I tried very hard to fit who I was into a box. I was always told I was too big, too bold, too much. I think if I could go back to those early days and say, yeah, you're right, you are too big. Good. Because you're going to do something far bigger than the average person, Mm -hmm. far more important in your bigness and boldness as a human. And if I could tell that girl, it's not about the way you think others perceive you, I think that would have really shifted my trajectory in a different way.
1: Wow. Wow. And I think that 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 messaging probably goes universal for any kid growing up in America or worldwide today, like hearing that messaging from you to kind of say, it's okay to be you and whoever you're going to be is going to be great. You just have to know that you're going to be great versus trying to suffocate the world around you by doing what they're asking you to do.
0: That's right. I think um, it was interesting in the process of writing my book this last year, which is hysterical because I would have never thought I'd write a book. um, I'm like, that's like a terrible idea. No, I'm not writing a book. Um, That just sounds like too much work. Um, I wrote this line at the end of the acknowledgement and I just, it was like, I remember like crying as I wrote it because I just said, thank you to all of the ones that said I was absolutely too big and too bold and too much. Mm. You are right you know i am way too big and too bold for the confines of what other people try to put me in and that was a really freeing moment as i wrote that because i've got kids now and as i look at them i realize as an entrepreneur my ability to stand in my truth my my tenacity to try and work on my own confidence and to work through the trauma that i've gone through and to try and continue to be the best version of me mm-hmm is very much the core of how I'm able to then impact not only my children and give them confidence, but even the people that I serve, I realize that I can't do what I'm called to do if I frankly don't work on my own mess every day. Hmm. I think as an entrepreneur, that's really humbling.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely humbling. And it's kind of like tipping the balance scales. Right. And it kind of leads me to like my next question and I'm happy you brought up your kids. Is like, with all your your historical stuff that has happened and your influences from your dad being an entrepreneur and getting married and going through the divorce and having you know overcoming self esteem issues, how do you currently like manage your work life balance with your kids like like what what does that look like for you?
0: Oh my gosh, you know um I didn't have that for a very long time. I mean, it wasn't until I hit burnout um in January of twenty twenty one where I had to physically put up some boundaries. Um, I actually was, my health started taking such a tumble that I was getting migraines two to three times a day. Hmm. Uh, my hands and joints would swell. My stomach would swell. I was dealing with cortisol and gut issues, autoimmune issues. Uh, I was packing on weight right and left, uh, couldn't sleep. None of it. Right. Like I, I couldn't even like get out of my chair at one point, most of the time when I would sit there and look at my Fitbit sitting in my desk chair, my heart rate was over a hundred to 110 wow. sitting. At my desk, talk about your stress, right? Yeah. So I had a few doctors. I worked with about five or six doctors, and like, yeah, you're 35, and you're really close to having a heart attack if you don't change something. And that was like a wake up call for me. So what that looks like then, in terms of protecting my work life balance, and then for my kids, has been I don't work past 4 p.m. Hmm. ever. I do not open my computer on weekends. Um, you are not allowed to call me after 4 p.m. Hmm. I'm not allowed to call you after 4 p.m. Like. I start work at 8 a.m. I end at 4. I have two walking breaks in the middle of the day to get up and move. Um, Quite frankly, I don't do a lot of face-to-face social interaction. I really covet my evenings and weekends with my kids and my family. I skip the happy hours. I sent a bunch of emails to people last May, I remember, and they're like, yeah, let's connect again. Let's connect. And you remember how we were all hitting like burnout on connecting after COVID? We're like, if I do one more networking call, right? Um... <laughs> No. Right. So I actually emailed them and I said, I got to be super candid with you. I appreciate you. I can't, I have to take a step back from actually what I'm putting in my day. And can I touch base in six months? The amount of grace and receptivity that people gave me was mind blowing. And I realized, wow, this is actually super important. So I only, instead of taking like five networking calls a day, I only do them in the morning or the afternoon. I only take client calls certain times a day. And I do it based on when my energy is at its max. Mm. So yeah. that's for me been the recipe that's worked. Hmm.
1: So let's, let's just go down that rabbit hole a little bit deeper. Like, like what are your morning routines, your morning rituals? Like,
0: sure. Get up coffee. No, I, I I do actually make a coffee and I put the music on and I get showered and get ready for the morning and get my children ready and we're out the door. And um, for me, I'm a, spiritual person. So I put worship music on in the car. And as I'm driving in the car, my kids are quiet and they're just waking up and I get to pray. I get to kind of take that time to meditate and pray and think about what I want this day to be. That, That 20 minute drive is like precious to me to start my day the right way. And it breaks off a lot of that anxiety during the day. Once I get to the office, it's really, um, I try and start my morning with a couple of connect calls, 8am 8 and 830, it gets my mind going. I get excited. I'm meeting people. And then at 9am, I can dive into an actual like client session. I'm awake. I'm energized. My brain's going. Uh, I'm ready to do the work. Um, I take a break after that. I do a second client session at 11. Take a break after that. And then I do um, a walk. And then I do my final client session from 1.30 to 3. And then I close my day between three and four doing a couple fun connect calls with people that again, excite me, get me thinking on stuff. Um, could be a prospect caller could just be a great networking session where I'm like, Oh my gosh, that was such a cool person. And I learned something. So I try and start my day and end my day with really, you know, interesting conversations and that fuels the work in between. Huh. And then I'm done 4 PM, shut the computer, get my cargo home.
1: Wow. Wow. So I mean, obviously, you're pretty structured in your routines. And you have to be, you know, post having like that health crisis and aware of health crises as well. So I mean, I definitely commend you for sticking to that. So uh, next thing I want to talk about is kind of like going back to like education for a minute, right? I mean, obviously, I think you're you're a very astute individual, like you have an abundance of information. And so again, I want to know, like, is that information coming way of books? And if they are, what books did you read on your journey to help you get to where you are currently? You're not gonna like this answer
0: okay so um all right so I actually have written a book and it's called muting the megaphone and it's coming out in July of 2022 and this is a very teeny tiny little book and it's really like you know your pocket brand guide it's really unpacking my method to how to write a brand So my first book and it will probably be a first in a number of books that I produce is really about, taking the methodology that I do every day with clients and actually writing it out. Here's are your steps to write your brand. So very tactical. So that's the book that I really produce because I realize that not everybody has the bandwidth to go through an intense process, but maybe this is something that they want to do on their own. They want to start to explore. They want to start to become great at writing their own brands. Maybe it's a creative who wants to learn how to write brands for their clients. Awesome. Go for it. So that's the book that I I am producing. But Interestingly enough, um, I do not read for business.
2: Hmm.
0: I have recognized that for me as a learner, just based on my learning style and how fast my brain goes, all the amount of cool business books in the world sometimes create overwhelm Hmm. in my mind. And I tend to just feel almost exhausted reading them like, Oh gosh, now I have 75 things I need to implement. That's immediately where my brain goes. So knowing that about myself, I actually keep reading for pleasure. So I read every night. I often read historical works, um, you know, autobiographies, great biographies, sometimes historical fiction that fuels my creative side. What I do do in books that have gotten me along the way, I tend to be the person. There's a few friends of mine who read these amazing books. They're obsessed. And then I call them and I go, can you give me the cliff notes? And they're like, yes, here, and I type fast and furiously and I take like a page or two of like cliff notes and I get more in that half hour conversation than I would have reading the entire book. And I know the things that I then need to take away. Often what happens is on the hinges of those conversations, I'll go back and buy the book and then I go through and I highlight. It sounds bizarre, but what I've realized is that when it comes to um, business books and podcasts, I think you have to know thyself. Mm-hmm. How do you consume information? What's the best way? I learn more in a podcast than I do in a book, and I'm totally fine with that.
1: Hmm. Nice, nice. So it seems like you're more on the audiobook side of things, but I think your methodology is great. I mean, obviously, Cliff Notes kind of give you the, the high point of view of what someone was trying to get across in the book in the first place. And then to your point, you're then going back and getting the book and doing the highlights. So you're kind of you, you got a cheat code, essentially.
0: Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I think for a lot of us, too, as we listen to podcasts or we read books or there's all, re, just a plethora of information out there for us. Right. Never before have I ever seen so much that we could consume. Um, I think one of the biggest questions I have to keep reminding myself and um, one of my mentors taught me this is she said, you have to keep asking the question, does this serve me right now? Mm. So, like, I have heard some friends talk about these amazing books, right? All these cool things. And I know that I'm just not ready to hear it. And mm-hmm. sometimes you have to trust your gut. And then you know what happens? Six months later, I'm like, I'm ready. And then I'm totally ready to consume that information and then act on it. Because remember, my tendency is the moment I consume something, I want to do it now. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm not ready to do it now, don't tell me. Mm-hmm. My brain can't handle it. Mm. Some people can read and they're like, I'm going to put a pin on that for five years out. That is not me. Mm. So I just have had to learn based on the way that I consume and act on information. I'm really okay going good concept. Maybe I'm just not ready to do that right now. And I'm okay putting that on the back burner until my business is in a place of readiness or until my personal life calms down, or I have the finances, energy, and capacity to tackle X, Y, and Z.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So I mean, with that, right? I mean, you're, you're a big action taker and you want to take actions right away, right? So this next question may be a little bit difficult for you, right? Where do you see you in your business 20 years from now?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. so that is such a great question. I get asked that a lot. Um, where are you going? What's driving you? So for me, there's only one of me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I keep reminding myself of that. There's only one Kate and I can't just duplicate myself uh, as much as I would love to try <laughs> and scale my business that way. One of the things that I had to reckon with earlier in my business Chanel, is like in my line of work, I tried to hire other brand strategists to do what I do. And I, I had a couple clients get really ticked off at me. Huh. And actually one of them was like, we're not signing with you unless you're the person in the room doing the work with us. And I was like, wow, oh. I was so upset. And I was like, well, there goes my girl stretch. <laughs> Cause I was like, I got to duplicate myself. I can't do all this work. Right. Good problem to have. But the thing is, is I realize people are buying me. They look at, they want a partnership with me and I respect and appreciate that, but that's not a way to scale your business. So how do I do that? And how do I do this in a way that serves where my family is along the course of life as well? I consult, but I am taking my brand playbook and I'm going to digitize that uh-huh. so that people have more of a do-it-yourself option. And what that enables me to do is pull up and out of the business just a little bit. So that really, I'm not maybe taking as many projects per year. Um, And maybe I'm offering more companies the opportunity to go through this method without having to necessarily partner with me. That's phase one. In five to 10 years time, the goal is to candidly be maybe only taking 10 projects a year versus the 30 to 40 that I do per year right now. Um, And I want to be able to teach and speak and, and write. I love teaching. So for me, if I can be in a room and see people have the light bulb moment, that's where I want to spend my time because I learn from them too. Like whenever I teach a room of entrepreneurs, I'm like, oh, I learned from them. This is amazing. So that's the goal. The ultimate goal is to really have a lifestyle where I could work 20 to 30 hours a week from anywhere in the world. Nice. That's it.
1: So, I mean, that's definitely interesting. I mean, you're, earlier on, you was a kind of alluding to like your target audience. Right. So I want to like take what you just said and dive into that sector a little bit more. Right. Because, again, you're talking about scaling. You're talking about potentially adding more zeros to your bottom line by saying, OK, you know what? Maybe I can't work with as much people. I could work with a chosen few at a higher premium. Right. Who is that ideal avatar for you? Maybe not today, but maybe for tomorrow.
0: Well, it's interesting. I think that the biggest detriment you could do, by the way, is outprice yourself, right? So like, I don't want to do that either. I think there's this really fine line that consultants like myself have to walk where just because you could charge $100,000 to work with me, is that really fair? Is that really admirable? Is that really the right price point? I I, mm, Here's the thing. I love serving small businesses. Mm -hmm. I just do. I have more fun on a small business project than I do working on a project with a enterprise company. Uh-huh. And the reason is just based on the dynamics of the team, typically, and what they're trying to do. Um, my number one criteria for taking a client will never change. And that is this, I will never take a project unless the founder is in the room for every session.
2: Uh-huh.
0: I, 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 I won't take an enterprise client unless the founder's in the room, because whether we like it or not, the founder and CEO hold the keys to the brand. I remember taking projects where I worked with a CMO and they did this amazing brand work. And then six months later, I'm going, why isn't this implemented? And they go, CEO kiboshed it. (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm never doing that again. Right. Yeah. So what I've realized is even as I scale the company by maybe working with a different type of client, I'm probably, what that genuinely looks like is there it's going from maybe bootstrapped baby startups that are just getting going to, Pretty profitable small businesses and startups that have either been in business for a while or from a funding perspective have gone through a series A, series B round. They're just, they're more established and that's okay. But they still have this tenacity and this personality of a small business that I love.
1: Hmm. Definitely interesting. So, Going into like you're dealing with these individuals and I get startup, it's, it's, a, it's a good place to be, right? You're talking about series A and that's when, you know, they they have a chunk of money and it's expendable money to a certain extent. And they want to scale. Correct. What, what software and tools do you use on a day to day basis that you would not be able to do what you're doing without having access to those platforms?
0: Oh my gosh. All right. So. I'm part old school and part new school. Let me break it down. One of the things that drives me nuts because I used to work with IT professionals all the time um, is when you walk in and you have a tech stack for this tiny company and they have like 75 things in their tech stack and you're like, why? Like, why do we have all of these things that we have to use? Like, I think that less is more. So what I did is I did some research for myself for a number of years ago, and I chose a platform. It's similar to HubSpot, but it's called Zoho, Zoho One. Now, some people love it. Some people hate it. But here's why I chose it. Based on my marketing needs at the time and currently, I wasn't doing a bunch of inbound marketing. I wasn't in a position where I necessarily could even maximize the capabilities of HubSpot, for example. So what I did is I recognized what I'm needing more than anything is a really solid operations, CRM, and and project management infrastructure. And Zoho One fit the bill. And so for 40 bucks a month per user, and there's just me, um, talk about a pleasure for that price, right? So That was actually what I have taken and built. And what that has done for me is freed up hours a week in terms of client management, invoicing, um, even projects and tasks. Instead of me having a checklist next to me, I I actually can put times and frames on those and more accurately manage when do I want to accomplish this and who's going to accomplish this. Do I need to bring in an outside resource to do this or is that my task? Um, That has been invaluable for me. The other thing that is the most important thing that I did early on is I productized my entire process.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you and I could go to town on this one, right? So instead of, instead of me coming in every time and just being a consultant, that's like, let's just talk strategy. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, a, I'm going to go on a tangent. B, my client's going to go on a tangent. So what I did is I built just a word document mm-hmm. and I built this brand playbook and it's like 30 pages long. And it's got all the questions that we ask in session one. It's got the charts we fill out in session two and all the sections. And then at the end of it is all the final brand components that the client walks away with, including like an implementation checklist. It's so nice then because we know what we're doing every step of the way. And more importantly, my client loves it because they feel that instead of talking at brand at a high level nebulous place. They're really getting a tactical thing. They're getting their brand in a book. Mm -hmm. And they love that. I want to give them a deliverable that they can use for years to come. So that was critical. Mm -hmm. Writing that brand playbook allows me then in the room to not have to write down every question every time, but to actually type and do the magic with them. That's where now I'm freed up to do the magic in the room.
1: Hmm. So I'm loving that. I mean, obviously... To your point, we could talk about forever about that particular topic. About <laughs> yeah, you do that to, too.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it, it's, it's about those puzzle pieces and how to separate those puzzle pieces. Because again, if someone sees the entire puzzle, it may be overwhelming. But if they just see the corner piece and then, then the next piece and the next piece and next piece sequentially, then it makes more sense. and It's easier for them to execute it. So let's say you're talking to a startup founder, right? And let's say I'm a startup founder and I'm talking to you and I'm like, okay, I love your tenacity. I love your energy. I love your messaging. I love what you're doing with branding. I need your help. What words of wisdom would you give to me to help me to continue on my brand journey.
0: Okay. The words of wisdom that I, there's a few things. It's number one, remembering that the goal of your brand is to be the path of least resistance to revenue. I don't want you coming up with sentences, Chanel, if you're writing this on your own, just for the sake of coming up with cool things. I want you to understand what am I saying that's going to deeply resonate at a heart level Mm. with my prospect. The second thing that I want you to remember is that you're not in the business of convincing. You're in the business of converting. You do not need to convince somebody to work with you. On the contrary, the job of your brand and the job of you as a founder is to put forth a message that's not only authentic to you, Uh but resonates with the right kind of audience that you think really is going to get value from this and allow them to self-select so that they come to the table. And they go, I love this. Here's my specific pain. Can you help me? And boom, you're having a real conversation where you're talking price, you're talking the next steps, and they're converting. That's really the job. Your brand is going to help you get to that point. And if you can just be okay with that, that's where the magic happens. And it puts you out a position of feeling like, I've got to be a slimy salesperson, but instead, deliver a pitch that really is just going to get the right prospect to the right table at the right time. Huh.
1: I mean, I think it's definitely profound what you said. I mean, it kind of goes back to like traditional stuff, talking about um, features versus benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And and, in the features versus benefits, what I want you to kind of talk to is like, how does someone compound that, right? I mean, you're, you're telling them, you're guiding them to say, lead with their heart, but by default, most people want to lead with their mind. And they're not realizing that most people make purchases based upon the way they feel about it. So let's talk about that for a second for a second in, in the sense of benefits versus features.
0: Yeah, that's great. So um so again, if we go back to the purpose of like your value proposition statement, and we get very tactical here for a second, right? You're gonna have a cool big bold tagline on your website, and then you're gonna have this follow-up s- series of one or two statements that's really about your value proposition. Okay. And the value proposition is supposed to really call out the truth of what somebody's feeling and then address like now, if you take this action, Mr. or Miss or whomever, mm-hmm. buyer, we can solve that pain for you. What that realistically means is that instead of leading the conversation with saying, we provide technology services to companies, mm-hmm. it's saying technology's hard and that's where we come in. Partner with us and we're going to help you build the right thing so you can do your job better. See, that's flipping the narrative from saying we do this to saying we get you. Here's how we solve your heart pain. It just happens to be through these amazing products and services that we offer.
1: Huh. Well done, well done. I mean, just listen to you. It sounds like you know. In today's world, a lot of people they go for like AI systems to, to write their copy. But again, these AI systems are based upon the intellectual side of someone like you sitting down, understanding these philosophies, and then programming something to be able to do what you do, right off the top of your head, like you just did. So I definitely, um, I, I really appreciate like the way you define that answer to that question. So my next question is like, so with that being said, right, and you're such a profound person in branding, how does someone get in contact with you? How do they find you on the internet?
0: Sure, so first off, find me on LinkedIn, please. Oh my gosh, I love connecting. If you've listened and you follow Chanel and you listen to this podcast, I would love for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me a personal message. I do read every single one and respond to every single one. I'd love to know who you are, hear your story. And if you want to connect on a Zoom call, let's do it. Let's find a time to chat. Always happy to do that. So that's number one. You can find me, Kate DeLeo. The spelling of my name, I'm sure, will be in the show notes. So watch for that. The other thing is very simply just go to my website, www.katedeleo.com. You can check out uh, previous talks I've done. You can certainly check out how you can work with me. Check out when the book's coming out in July, but would love to hear from you.
1: Nice, nice. So that leads us into like the bonus round, right? And this next question is kind of like a, a question that, Again, I don't. I think that you're doing what you're doing because you're passionate about it. So let's take out the money. If money wasn't a factor of what you're doing, would you still be doing what you're doing right now? Yep. Why?
0: Because my purpose in life is to help people to step into their purpose. I just so happen to do that by helping them understand the message that's going to enable them to do that.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, another bonus question for you. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Jesus.
0: I just I just want to watch and listen. Hmm. It's not just because I'm a Christian. I became a Christian in my later years. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a choice of mine. I want to watch what he does, how he talks, the way he interacts with people. I think that there's a lot we can learn from people such as Jesus who've walked this earth and made an impact like that on others.
1: Hmm. I could definitely see that. Especially with the, just like knowing that the Bible is a a big book of storytelling and and I mean, that's essentially what you're doing. So it makes perfect sense.
0: I want to watch the people that have gone before us and how they show up in the world every day and the way that they love people and the way that they treat people. Wow. And that's the thing that I I would love Mother Teresa. Similar. doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not. You just look at people that had an impact in the world, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to watch them. I want to understand the way that they treat people, because I think I get in my own way. We all do. But yeah. if there's stuff that I can glean from somebody like that, mm-hmm. of how to slow down, to listen differently, to care differently, mm-hmm. that's the stuff that changes you
1: and it changes others. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, with that, like another spinoff question based upon that answer is, with significance right and you're talking about jesus and mother Teresa, and i think that you have a hell of significance in the area of what you do expertise wise what yeah. is your most significant achievement to date my family mm.
0: i mean I'll, I'll be honest you know i've got a beautiful blooded family i've got four kids under the age of eight wow. <laughs> my my husband's a saint let me tell you i love that man um and he loves that i can run my race as that brandos um my family, my kids, my my spouse, that's that's the most important thing to me. Um at the end of the day, listen, if I get sick and I can't type ever again, my arms get cut off and I can't do this work anymore, but I still have them, mm-hmm. I'm still a blessed person.
1: Wow. Wow. It's beautifully said, for sure. I mean, obviously I can tell you write copy for a living for sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, going into closing, man, I always love to give an opportunity to whoever I'm interviewing to become the host of Boston Cage podcast. So the show is yours. I am now the person you're interviewing. What questions do you have for me? Favorite food. Um, it will be Thai or Japanese cuisine. Favorite color. Clear.
0: Clear? I, that is the best answer I've ever heard to that question, by the way, that is amazing. Mine's black. So there you go. It's like, it's either. Yeah, there you go. Um, favorite month, December, favorite time of day.
1: That's interesting. I used to be a night owl, but now I'm becoming more of an early bird. So I would say maybe four or five o'clock in the morning.
0: Favorite place to take a nap. My hammock. Favorite way to relax.
1: Wow. Um, Rock climbing.
0: Favorite way to work out? Hmm.
1: Mixed martial arts.
0: Fascinating what we learn. Hmm. Favorite thing about the work that you do?
1: Wow. I think it kind of goes back to my favorite color. It's starting with something that doesn't exist, something that's completely transparent that I can see, but the other person can't see. And then we bring it into fruition.
0: Favorite thing about hosting this podcast?
1: I love, I love, I love interviewing people like you and individuals and getting to understand like their nuances of their stories and having it documented in this format so that way, legacies of other entrepreneur or children down the road have opportunities to learn from us now. There you go. Well, I I definitely appreciate you. I think that this this episode was definitely an insightful episode. I mean, again, as much as I love branding, just hearing branding from someone else that's so profound as you are and just talking about it and delivering so much different value. I think the listener, if you have not gotten value from this, by all means, I would think you probably need to stop, rewind, listen to it a couple of times for it to really sink in so you can kind of really get like the value add that Kate delivered today. I definitely appreciate you being on the show.
0: Hey, thank you so much. It's a joy. It's an honor. I appreciate it.
1: Great, S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncage. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an uncaged trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com. Or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 233 BOSS. That's 762 233 2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a Boss and Cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to
0: download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook become an uncaged trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash
2: free book.